can't get you to be quiet, and then uh, some days I can't get you to be quiet, and then other days it's more frightening actually for me when you actually do go quiet. So uh, you know, a day like this when you're all quiet all of a sudden, I'm, I'm sure that that sets an expectation I won't be able to meet. So oculi, my eyes, says Reardon. Uh, three Sundays, here we are into Lent. And the great story about the mud on the eyes. Jesus, how, how does Jesus like to heal you? Sometimes he spits on you. Which, uh, if that doesn't make you sacramentally Christian, nothing will. You know, people have this Platonic idea of Jesus sort of having a good idea. You know, there's nothing so counter that. That when he sees a blind man, he spits on him to heal him. It's just, it's, he says, mud, uh, dirt is not, is not simple dirt only, but, but dirt comprehended with the spit of Jesus and connected with the Holy Spirit. That's how the Catechism says it, I think, you remember. So, uh, well, you tough crowd today. Okay, okay. Uh, you know, Jesus, it's just, it's just, and you remember that in Luther's first 1523 baptismal revision, the pastor still spit on the child at the font. Because you knew something was happening when the pastor... You know, sort of warmed up the kid with spit in his ears and his tongue uh, just to remind him, Ephrathah, be open, open up his ears and open up his tongue. Why? Because that's, that's how Jesus did it. He spit on people to heal them. So if you bring your little pagan, you spit on them too. Uh, that dropped out by 1526, so it may not have been a, you know, the most popular thing. Or, or people got confused about the spit as it were, as it were a sacrament or something, which wasn't what was going on at all. But it's a good... Uh, it's a good uh, it's a good reminder toward the resurrection. You know, the, the, the eyes that will be redeemed are the ones that Jesus spit on. That's, that's how you'll know. Uh, that's how you'll know which, which, eyes to be, which, which eyes will be resurrected to heaven, the ones, that, the, the ones that were touched by Jesus, however he chooses to touch. So, here we are, third week of Lent. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Heavenly Father, who sent your Son to sinful men and laid on him the grievous burden of the cross, that we might see and know the glory of your holy love, grant that our faith in him may not be shaken by adversity or daunted by the threat of it, but that we may ever follow steadfastly the way that leads to perfect fellowship with him and so with you, through the same Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And, of course, you know, you see that it's all in that. It's fascinating how, you know, you, you, know that, you know that you're right in the church when you make the same noises that the church has made for, for uh, hundreds and thousands of years. So, you know, he sends his son. The father sends the son. The father puts the burden on the son. The father puts the burden on the son so that you might see glory. But, of course, the ultimate glory is in the cross. That's what Jesus said. So now let our faith not be shaken when we similarly suffer or daunted when we're threatened, but that we follow the way that leads to perfect fellowship with him, koinonia, which is the communion word. So, uh, you know, it's, it's amazing when people, when people ask, you know, why to pray book prayers, um, you know, it's not, well, because you learn stuff, that's why. Because people who've been praying forever uh, know how to pray. I think you remember um, Bonhoeffer, the story about Bonhoeffer when he's about to be executed. Uh, they sort of stripped him down naked to kill him, and uh, he had a moment for his prayers. And one of the guards who had him said, he prayed as if somebody was listening. It's a remarkable thing to say about a person. He prayed as if somebody was listening, then they killed him, executed him. So uh, it's, it's remarkable that a person can go to death in such a way.
Now, I was worried about you a bit last week, and I, I offered a couple of reasons why. But, uh, you know, one is uh, I, I'm much concerned about the veneer that has been given to Christianity in our generation. And I think in large part that veneer is given because we no longer have a sense of what it is to be contemplative or to meditate on what it is that the Lord is up to. So I wonder if you can just take a few weeks to do that uh, in these next few weeks. And one of the good ways to do that is silence. Another way is poetry. Another way is art. Uh, you might just observe, uh, you know, the Lord before you there on that window. And there is, of course, the place where you can put the Lord on the cross. Mine is ten rows back in the middle. Walk down backwards down. There'll be a point on that window where the Lord actually goes on the cross. It's fascinating stuff. I'm, I'm ten rows back, just right in the, right in the middle. Where I, when you look up now, for some measure of you, your angle will put the Lord on, the, on that cross that hangs up there. To be thinking about that is really um, what Lent is all about, that you, you take some time to do that. I have my own impatience with the church, and uh, I am uh, doubly impatient when the church cheats itself. Uh, when people suffer needlessly, uh, that's a great sadness. And the church suffers needlessly because it has given up the things uh, often which are precisely the things that could make it grow. Um, again, I had an encounter with somebody this week who said, all that doctrine scares people off. And then, uh, you know, the, the answer to that is, that's such an arrogant and paternalistic thing to say about the people that the Lord wants to save. In Matthew 28, 16 to 20, when the Lord gives the baptismal mandate, what he says is, Teach all things to all people. Go make disciples of all nations, all people, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded. So the Lord says, teach everything to all people. If you teach them anything less in the church, you cheat them and you sin. It is not up to you or to me to be paternalistic, uh, as, if, as if we're so much smarter and better than people who haven't yet heard. Our job is to deliver and so I am concerned uh, about a Christianity going forward which seems no longer able to uh, take joy not only in doctrine but also in what lies beyond doctrine, the mystery of the cross. On the other hand, uh, I regularly remember a, a very old Chinese story, not doesn't belong to Christians, uh, it's a very old Chinese story about a man uh, who goes out and plants his rice fields week after week and one day he comes home, and his uh, father, who's a bit of a lunatic, uh, has pulled up all uh, the seedlings from the paddies and brought them home in bushels. Uh, now they all face the prospect of poverty and starvation. And the son says to the father, why did you pull up uh, all the seedlings? And the father says to the son, I wanted to help them grow. And of course, there's a warning in that for people like me uh, in trying to force growth on people like you. But it does fit nicely then with what Lutherans are meant to do and what the church is meant to do, which is simply put the goods out there. Uh, the, you know, the task of, uh, of what happens in the church is to put the goods out there, all of them, of course, and then see where the chips fall. And in some ways, that's a comforting thing because uh, the Holy Spirit uh, takes a good charge of them as soon as they're put out. So we may not get in the way of the gifts, 
uh, and we may beg the Lord to bless with growth, both in numbers and in maturity. Uh, and beyond that, you know, we sort of have to settle down and see what the Lord will do. But I would bid you, in the same way I bid myself, not to get in the way of the gifts. The Lord is very interested in more people and more maturity, but he only chooses to do that uh, in the way of spitting in people's eyes or putting his body and blood onto their uh, tongue or his name on their skin or his words in their ears. And I wonder if for your Lent, you know, uh, Lenten fasting, uh, you know, is a good thing. And it's fascinating to watch. Um, we have more and more kids who, who are sort of, it's fascinating to watch kids exercise the discipline of fasting. Simple things like giving up candy or Coca-Cola, it's fascinating to watch it. We never have sort of said you should do this, but we've sort of said this is out there. And then we bump into kids who, it's just amazing to see the kids can actually do it. They can actually do that if they want to for 40 days. It is amazing to watch. But the other side of that might be, uh, one of the things we might be fasting from over the course of Lent is our ignorance, or our busyness, or our resistance. Every once in a while we run a, a brilliant thing, I think it's from Basil the Great, but I, I can't quite remember where he says, you know, the, you, you fast from your wicked tongue from saying evil things about others. If you really want to fast for Lent, uh, why don't you fast from not saying your prayers? It's a brilliant little thing. And uh, that sort of pushes you onto the cross as well. So I just wonder in these weeks, and now the way the calendar has fallen out and we've spent some time doing, you know, if we really do seven words and we do them one at a time, it will push us past Easter. That won't be the worst thing that could happen. But it, it, it might be good if you sort of hold that as you go forward. So there was a bit of poetry last week and the mystery of the cross and the suggestion that that was the only possible way that you could have a past, a present, and a future. Uh, that your past is redeemed and your present has meaning and your future might be a hopeful one. And I think, you know, if you have to sum it all up, uh, the great quote from Newhouse last week where he says, the truth about the crucified Lord is the truth about us. You want to know the truth about yourself? Look at Christ on the cross. The truth about the crucified Lord is the truth about us. That's the truth about us. And the truth is that without any sort of um, consideration of what you might want or find acceptable, and in full rejection of whatever his own feelings might be about his son, the Lord sends him to the cross for you, but it's first not about you. It's about how badly they would like you back. And so the Lord comes, and in his coming, it's not simply making peace with evil. And that's, that's a huge mistake to think that way. What happens on the cross is not making peace with evil. It is utter re rebellion and breaking of evil. That's what's happening on the cross. So that evil is broken, and life and death are not the same. Not the same for us as they are for other people. Christ comes as the one who knows the way and uh, brings his gifts. And though we know desperately deep down that we need these things, and we know that by way of our experience in guilt and shame and pain and empathy, empathy with those who suffer and our yearning for justice, at least on our good days, we know deep down that something in the world is broken and need to be fixed, and that, in fact, is what happens on the cross. 
Uh, just one other, just one other aside as I go here. Probably a weakness in what I've done here the past, you know, years I've been here. Um, this kind of surfaced again in women's Bible study on Friday. It may be um, that I think something is happening here that you don't recognize is happening, and so I sort of think things are happening and they're not. I think one of the things that's important for you and important for me to remember is, you know, when you hear things that you've heard before. Um, you know, one of the things I'm hoping is that you'll learn to get your lines right. And that really goes toward witness. And it may have been that in past years that wasn't the place where we were as a church, but it really needs to be a place, it needs to be the place where we are as a church now. And one of the things, uh, you know, in the, in the quiet and reflection of, of this Lenten time, one of the things that you might use your time for is to try to get your lines right. That is, when people ask, as, as Paul wrote, uh, that you be able to give a good word for the faith that is in you. When people ask that of you, you really need to have learned by now to do that. And one of the ways you learn to do that is by imitating people who are able to say it so much better than you ever could. So, so you know, the, the, a, a, a throwaway phrase like Newhouse's, the truth about us uh, is the tru truth about the crucified Lord. I mean, if you're able to say that, you're able to enter a conversation with somebody not on your terms, but on the Lord's terms. Or, you know, you dispatch sort of all notion of, of preparation for forgiveness, you know, with this line I gave you last week, not my own. He takes away your sins. The only way that they can hurt you is if you take them back. Which means the Lord gets all the credit for the good, and if there's any evil, you'll have to take credit for that. You know, partly what I hope you're doing and this is see, sort of the margin comments go toward this and the repetition of, of talk about word and sacrament. All of that goes toward equipping you or giving you words to say when uh, people think you're on about uh, nothing. When somebody comes in and says, well, all that doctrine frightens people away, you can't possibly let that lie. The reason you can't let that lie is that it's antichrist. When Christ gave instructions about the church, the instructions he gave was all things to all people. And you remember, I, I, I think I mentioned to you a few weeks ago, that that's not teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. That's not the word. It's a poor translation. The word is teaching them to ponder up. It's, it's the same word that's used of Mary in the Christmas story, when after she's had a long Christmas day, and the, the shepherds go away and the angels go home, she treasures up, and Mary pondered all these things in her heart. That's the same word that Jesus uses for doctrine in the Great Commission. So you're to have, uh, 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 to all people, you're to give them a word that would allow them to ponder up all that Jesus has said, and nothing less. So the church will sort of live and die uh, by whether or not we're able to do that. The church is ever just one generation from extinction. You know, it's, just, it's just one generation. There is no hereditary church. The church is one generation from extinction. We will either deliver and the church will continue, or we will not deliver, and the church will end. This is as simple as that. That's the way the Lord has set it up. So I, I hope, at least during this time, perhaps you could use your time for what's familiar, uh, not just to, just to rethink what's familiar, but perhaps you could use your time for thinking about how you might pass on what's very familiar to you uh, in a way to someone who knows it not at all. That, that would be a good Lenten discipline. It would be a good Lenten fast. Uh, if you could fast from the fear of speaking about your faith to other people.
And it doesn't take an awful lot. You know, most people's questions are simply introductory questions that want to draw them into the mystery of the gifts that Christ Jesus gave. You don't have to be, you know, to be, to be talking to your next door neighbor about the Lord is not for you to have to have gone to pastor school. It's simply have, to, to said your prayers for 20 years is certainly qualification. Um, there was once a woman round about here who uh, came to Bible study a long time and then uh, went, and some of you would know her as soon as I tell you the, the, the circumstances. It's a glorious story. I don't think she'd mind if I told you. Um, she, was, she was round about here uh, for, for some time and then decided uh, to join the Orthodox Church with her family. And she was not Orthodox by birth, and uh, she went to her priest and uh, uh, said, I'm ready now to, to, be, to, to, to be Orthodox with the family. Uh, may I take instruction? And the priest brilliantly said, you've been here for 20 years saying the liturgy with us. That's instruction enough. This brilliant little perception there on, the, on behalf of the priest that he realized who she was by what she'd done over the past few years. So uh, in the same way, I, I think many of you are at that point, and uh, it's just a matter of sort of smoothing out the, smoothing out the rough spots. And if you, could, if you could spend some time in Lent doing that, it'd be a very helpful thing. If you've got a Bible, you might spin it to, to Luke 23. Let me say a little bit about the seven last words. Uh, you have to go to all the Gospels together if you're going to get seven. And of course, the Gospels, because none of the Gospels include all seven of them, then, uh, you know, there's a question about which one came first. Um, the, the order is not so much uh, the priority here. The interest is in what the Lord said uh, in, his, in his last moments. It's fascinating stuff. You sort of set that al alongside uh, the comment uh, about the man roasted alive under the, uh, under the offering today. You know, there's a little thing about the Archdeacon Lawrence about being roasted alive. You sort of set that next to, uh, you, you set it all next to each other and see if, if last words sort of add up to Jesus' words. That would be a valuable exercise for all of us. So 20, uh, Luke 23, um, let me see here. How about 39-ish? One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. And of course you know that there's nothing more um, painful than to be taunted uh, as the evidence runs against you. As, I was going to say, as, as, as you're guilty, you need to be caught out. Of course Jesus is not caught out. But there is the pain of being uh, taunted uh, against the fact of the matter. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Great stuff. So a couple of things to be thinking about. Uh, in the course of the, uh, you know, the history, uh, as often happens, people embellish the story a bit. And so over the course of the years in the church, the thieves have names. Uh, one, Gestus, the taunting thief. <coughs> 
and dismiss the faithful thief. Now, I only tell you that because uh, it just enriches your experience. There's somebody will talk about Gesta someday at a dinner party, and you'll know just who it is. Uh, you'll be well prepared. Uh, so you just, you just sort of tuck that away. Uh, or if you, if you look at an icon or a painting and they say Gestus there, uh, and traditionally on the left, the taunting thief, and in, at least in artwork, uh, the, 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 uh, the uh, uh, dismiss the faithful thief, on the right, uh, in the way of Matthew 26, when he comes, he'll separate the sheep and the goats, faithful to the right and unfaithful to the left. So you'll often see that now as the um, thieves begin to appear in artwork. That's, that's how it works out. <coughs> But I wonder if uh, you can you can if you can hang with Gestus for a while, and if I could suggest to you that it is his disappointment in Jesus, which does him in. And you don't have to press too hard uh, in our society or in ourselves to suggest that uh, we know what that is all about. And of course, the proof of that is that we regularly remake Jesus in our own image. We are horribly uncomfortable with Jesus as he is. Uh, we're horribly uncomfortable with a Jesus who is for sinners in spite of themselves, with a Jesus who is for the poor, for a Jesus who is merciful when people deserve something else, for a Jesus who cares not much for his culture except to save it and would challenge it on pretty much every front. For a Jesus who bids you to be a disciple, which means everything is done at full speed and full blast, and that you may not shave the edges or say uh, weakly, well, that, that, that sort of thing that Jesus taught, all that doctrine is too hard for us and for others, so we'll just sort of let that go. You see, that's to be hanging on the wrong side of Jesus. That's actually the problem. It's not the Jesus who is delivered in the Scripture. And in the end, whether you know it or not, that is a first commandment break. That is, at that point, when we redefine our Jesus, we've become master and Jesus has become our slave. A bit of a, a, bit of a house dog, that Jesus. We, we tell him to sit and roll over, and he better do it when we tell him, or that'll be the end of it. That's to be hanging on the left. That's Gestus, the taunting thief. What he is most uh, angry with Jesus about is that Jesus disappoints his expectations. If you're the Christ, let's all get down. So he makes his demand on Jesus, and if Jesus doesn't fit his demand, then he's no good at all. He's no Jesus. You might test that against your own image of Jesus and whether or not you have a Jesus that is not reflected in the text. In our culture, that would be a crossless Jesus or a victorious Jesus or a Jesus who is... Uh, for white folk, upper middle class, and beyond. That's not the Jesus of the text. The Jesus of the text is somebody different than that. On the other side is uh, Dismas, the faithful thief, with a simple plea that Jesus remembers him. And I will suggest to you in a moment that that is the mark of faith. But let me just say first, what leads me to say that is the simple plea to be remembered by Jesus is to be gathered into whatever it is Jesus is all about. It is to participate in who Jesus is. So hold that for a second. We'll go back to that. But to, as you know, you know, Passover among your Jewish friends, Daddy, why is this night different than all other nights? 
And of course, that retells the story by which you actually participate. That is what your Jewish friends believe, that they actually participate in the Passover, that they go through the Red Sea and the Exodus, that that covenant is made with them and for them, that they're brought under the Decalogue to live a life that pleases God. That's what's happening. And that, of course, is what's happening for you as well. Now, that rankles us. you know, that's uncomfortable for us. And often what we ask for then is a little bit of extra. To give us a sign. Where's all the good stuff? How come nobody had their palsied limbs uh, fixed up this morning? When was the last time you went to any church? And even for places that can do the palsied limbs, uh, the acid test is resurrection. You remember there was a story a few years ago where um, uh, sort of a wacky uh, television pastor kept his wife in the freezer for uh, several months uh, with repeated attempts to bring her back. (laughs) Uh, uh, You know, the acid test is death. So Jesus was quite clear during his time here that he'll do the signs that he'll do when he wants to do them and when it serves his purpose, and otherwise he ain't going to be doing them. And the reason is, is that nobody, I'll give you a double reason. One is anybody can do signs, and two, nobody believes because of signs. You know, you don't know when a sign comes, whether it's demonic or Christological. You don't know. You cannot tell the difference. Not without a word. If you have to choose the deed or the word, you always take the word, because the word explains itself. You always take the word. And so Jesus says, you know, you'll get nothing from me, this generation, this wicked, perverse generation, gets nothing from me but the sign of Jonah, which, as you remember, is three days entombed and then spit up in resurrection. That's the Jonah story. You want a you sign? The only sign you'll get is death and resurrection. You'll get Good Friday and Easter, and if you can't get the hang of it from Good Friday and Easter, you can't get the hang of it. So even today, death and resurrection is the ultimate sign. Is, is the death and resurrection belong to the Lord himself. That's why all these things about um, stem cells and abortion and euthanasia go so horribly wrong. We take God's decision out of God's hand, and we will be punished for that. Life belongs to God, not to us. So, the only sign you get is death and resurrection. And this is how God wants to be known. He wants to be known in giving himself on the cross. Now, sometimes Christians feel horribly under-equipped, having nothing but a cross. And the proof of that is how many Christians have given up the cross. How few places... If you can go to a church and not hear about the, church, hear about the cross, that church is anti-Christ. Everything about Christ is distilled into the, into the cross. There's nothing that, about Jesus to be said that you can't pull out of the cross. You know? Everything you need to know is found there on Good Friday. So churches who abandon that are running against the Lord they proclaim. Sometimes that leaves people feeling as if uh, they don't quite have enough. But I, I give you this little bit from Hauerwas where he says, Uh, The reticence of the gospel, as well as these spare words from the cross, is not accidental. Instead, that reticence is a discipline 
given to us by God to draw us into, to make us participants in the silence of a redemption wrought by the cross. <coughs> Jesus, remember me, is a plea to participate. So, um, you know, I explored a little bit with you last week our own fear that we will be left alone and unloved, which pretty much, honestly, you can get most of the fears that we've got under the two categories, I'm afraid to be alone and I'm afraid to be unloved. There's almost nothing that doesn't fit under those two things. But I would suggest to you that Jesus is after more. That the thief, and I think, I think Howard Wass is right here, the thief is, is pleading for more than just that, that he has significance. What's the more? These words are not about the thief, but they are words about Jesus. These are words of faith. It was interesting, and I didn't know this, um, and I need to test this. You can test this, too. Sometimes you come across things and you say, you, you know, you read it and you say, uh, that, that can't possibly be true. Then you furiously try to find the, the antithesis and you can't find it. Um, so I take this until I prove it the other direction, that this is the only place in the gospel where somebody simply calls Jesus, Jesus. It's a fascinating thing. Not Jesus Christ, not Master, not Jesus the Lord. This is the only place in the gospel, you test this now as you read, this is the only place where anybody calls Jesus, Jesus, simply Jesus. This sort of intimate, remember the angel said, call his name Jesus because he'll save his people from their sins. You remember that? Call his name Jesus because he'll save his people from their sins. That's Matthew 1, like 21-ish. Okay? So now the thief, who in his last moments needs help, what does he say? Jesus, as if they're old friends. He dares to do what nobody else in the entire scripture has done. And there is an intimacy. Uh, you know, if, one of the great things about dying is that, you know, you know sort of the, all the illusions can come down. Not always does it happen, but very often, you know, death is the point where people say the things they've always thought they should say. They make up uh, after years of never having been willing to make up with each other. Death is often the time where, you know, all the, all, 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 everything goes away except the most important things, which is precisely what happens on the cross. This man who's got nowhere else to go and knows it, you know, by the luck of the draw, is hung up next to the Lord of the universe. And in that, he confesses. Why? Because in asking Jesus to remember him, he believes that deep down, Jesus will persist beyond death. There's already in those words, Jesus, remember me, the confession that Jesus will survive whatever happens to him on the cross. That is, there is a confession both of immortality and of resurrection. Jesus himself had said this when he said, you know, I'll build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. So I give you a little bit then, uh, like the thief, we can live with hope and confidence that the only remembering that matters is to be remembered by Jesus. When you're worried about your legacy, which I always find to be a, a strikingly odd thing. I always find it so odd when presidents in their second term turn so much attention to how historians will remember them. 
they had to worry about how the people who they serve will remember them, if they're worried about being remembered at all. You know, the only thing, the only, the only person you need to worry about remembering you is Jesus. And you may, I've said this to you a time or two, there is a great scholar uh, from the last century now, Yeremias, Joachim Yeremias, who grew up in the Middle, uh, Middle East, uh, I think missionary parents, and so had a, had a full uh, sort of introduction to, to Hebrew Middle Eastern culture, who insists that when uh, we say the words at the Holy Supper, when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, that it is not so much about you remembering Jesus, but about the Father remembering us. What he is most suggesting is Jesus is begging the Father to remember us as we kneel. It's a fascinating interpretation and has a load of possibility. So this is, this is such a gospel thing. You don't have to come to the altar and sort of screw up your courage to remember Jesus. You sort of come all broken down and shaky and weeping and the Father remembers you. That, that one's mine right there. You know, the one, the one that's been destroyed again this week, that one's mine. So uh, there, is in, there, there, there is connection between this remembering and the gifts that the Lord gives. I'm, I'm, I'm at point seven. Um, partly the reason Jesus gets crucified is that his kingdom rejects the kingdoms of the world. And I wonder if, if you can bear that or not. There's a brilliant, I, did you see, do you, you know, if you're still an old duffer enough to read Doonesbury on, on Sunday just for the edge, there's a brilliant little Doonesbury last week critique of all the, of all the uh, new television shows, uh, especially Cribs and all that ilk where, you know, it's just, it's just fascinating, the guy's ability to go to the point. And of course, it's more fun when he skewers somebody else rather than you. But, uh, you know, his fascinating point, to observing that all of those, uh, all of those uh, shows are simply uh, uh, about envy and elitism and, 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 and people saying, don't you wish you were me and I don't really, sort of master and slave kind of relationships. It's brilliantly done. Uh, you know, and, and partly the reason that needs to be skewered is that it is our culture that presumes its own resurrection immortality. We proceed on a daily basis as if our culture will live forever. Of course, it's an utter lie. You know, the, the evidence is all around us. That Mul Mul I think it was Malcolm Muggeridge a few weeks ago where he says you can always tell, uh, uh, we, we, so one of the guys ran it a, you know, a few weeks ago at the stewardship point, you can always tell a culture in decline by their, uh, so there are several things, a great interest in wealth, great interest in, in erotic and all things sexual, um, great inter interest in asserting themselves, great interest in extending their reign. It's a sure mark of a culture going down the tubes which, of course, is the culture in which you live. It's going to be a very interesting next hundred years. I, I told Finn last week that I hope the Africans will save us. There is a way of being tested uh, when, when you're sort of on the line every day about your faith. Uh, you're, you're a Christian in the Sudan, and so that means that you know, it might be either the militia or perhaps the government bombers that will drop by the village today and try to do you in. There's a way that being Christian matters enough to those people that nothing else matters. We've lost that in our age. But that is precisely what the cross bids, and there will be a day, and you may hold to this, where every knee will bow to the name of Jesus. There will be a day. You know, don't, don't comfort yourself with that prematurely. You know, it likely won't be today. But it will come, 
and uh, it is worth holding on to. So I wonder, you know, as part of your discipline, if you can be happy living in rejection of your culture. And I, I could talk to you for three hours about that. I think that we're so done in by our culture, we cannot, we even find it odd in each other when there's a rejection of what's around us. It's almost as if we don't want to be with people who are in rejection of the culture. It makes us too uncomfortable. And yet Jesus in the cross is in utter rejection of the culture. Now he stands above the culture. He critiques it. He ruins it. He reformulates it. You know, once you were not a people, now you are a people. Once you were in darkness, now you are in light. Once you were sinners, now you're a royal priesthood. Does that mean anything anymore in the church? That actually matters. And you know that it matters because of the way that the Lord speaks to the thief on the cross. And so do you as well. I wonder then, this is point eight, um, I don't mean to put it flippantly, but I actually want to put it honestly. If you can be happy in a heaven where there are thieves and they got there first, We normally have in our conception of paradise, uh, our paradise. And I think that many of us will be very shocked. The Lord's paradise is going to be filled with people that you never imagined would be there. And I wonder if it'll bother you just a bit that they've been partying for several hundred years without you. <laughs> you sort of arrive and the thief on the cross is, you know, right there. Uh, you know, how, how could such a man... It'll be great if he still has his wounds. If he dribbles a bit, that would be nice. Sort of remind you, the guy who got fried, you know, I wonder if he'll just, he'll bear the grill mark, you know, as a St. Lawrence. Oh, how'd you get that? You remember on the, in the Sistine Chapel, someday when you go, if you're invited to vote on the next pope, uh, look up, you know. It's fascinating that they lock up in the Sistine Chapel. You can hardly make a better choice than that. Uh, you remember that, uh, you know, there's a ceiling that everybody knows with, you know, has has um, the Lord reaching out and touching Adam. But there is, uh, on then the, the, the wall behind the altar, there is a large scene of the Last Judgment. It's, it's a bit bitter on the bottom where people are being cast into hell. But then on the top, there's the Lord sort of gathering his own. And, you know, sort of in the middle, you know, a third of the way down, there's, a, there's an angel who has got this, what looks like a, a spandex suit he's carrying. He's kind of shaking the wrinkles out of it. You're like, what in the world is that? What's well, old? It's old Saint Bartholomew's skin. You know, they killed him. They, they sacrificed him by skinning him alive. You know, so this angel's job is to bring. Barth He's sort of shaking it out and having Bartholomew put it back on. This brilliant little bit of the resurrection. And you, what you what you hope is there's just a you hope that there's just a little bit of a slice or a tear someplace because you could say, well, aren't you Bartholomew? You, know, you just tell it's him. It's, it's brilliant stuff. I wonder if you'll be able to be happy with that. And I, I think this is, this is quite good, this Hauerwas quote. Remembrance, this is point eight, remembrance is quite literally to be remembered. Through baptism, we're given a new body, a body no longer isolated from the bodies that constitute Christ's body. Do you understand what that means? That to come to baptism is to be, have your body drawn into the body of Christ. You know, and, and, if you're, and if you're drawn into the body of Christ next to somebody who you would never imagine should be there, your only response is to rejoice in that. 
That's the kind of person that Christ died for. I, just, I, I think that we, we are so focused on ourselves and our own needs and wants of the church. The church has, has so much become a place that is, that is much more like a spa and no longer like a hospital that we constantly focus on what it is that I can get from church rather than what God bids, rather than what God can get from church. You know, coming to church isn't about what you want, it's about what God wants. And what he wants are things that you hardly can even imagine. And I wonder if you could reflect on that and begin to be happy. Um, you know, I can't go too much more, but I will tell you this. Uh, if that leaves you in any sort of despair, um, point nine, please don't. Jesus is not fastidious about the quality of faith. He takes our faith more seriously than we do. This is just it's brilliant. That, I mean, that just could not be better. Because sometimes people will come in and moan about uh, they don't believe in Jesus anymore. And then, you know, the proper response, I think, is, at least the one I've been given is, well, that doesn't really matter because Jesus believes in you. Just stop talking about yourselves, thinking about yourselves. Love Christ and serve your neighbor. When people came to Jesus and said, what's it all about? He said, love Christ and serve your neighbor. He gave no self-referent. Wouldn't it be nice to have a Lent where we could give ourselves, that would be it, we'd give ourselves up for Lent. That, that we, should be, we should probably have a, you know, we should, that next year, that's, we'll all get together on Ash Wednesday and give ourselves up for Lent. That would be good. He takes our faith more seriously than we do and makes of it more than we ever could. That is just raw gospel. His response to our faith is greater than our faith. Give him an opening, almost any opening, and he opens life to wonder beyond measure. That is just, you know, that it does not, that's as good a gospel as there is. I'll leave you with the next bit, 10, 11, and 12. Um, we'll come to it next week. But I do want to, at point 12, I've given you something that's a little dicey. But I want you to hear it in the right way, okay? There is in the Newhouse book, um, he, he opines for some number of pages about how he wishes everybody is saved. I frankly wish everybody is saved, too. He goes beyond my wish, and he uh, tries to spin out a couple of ways that might happen. I would love for him to be right. You know, I would love for hell to be empty. I would. But I also think that this, and so this quote sort of goes to his pitch to universalism. I didn't give it to you for that reason. I don't believe it, but I gave it to you for another reason, which is I think exactly the same quote can be given to you about the Christian life. One hears the objection. This is the last thing at the bottom on page tw uh, on, under number 12. One hears the objection. What's the point of being Christian if, in the end, everyone is saved? You know, I translate that in my own head as, you know, what's the point of, 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 of being a disciple if, if, in the end, I'm going to make it in by the skin of my teeth? You know, why learn any doctrine? Why, why, why give anything up for Lent? Why think about anybody else? As long as I believe in the little baby Jesus, I get my sins forgiven. You know, it's just a bit of fire insurance. I, I'm going to be in, so why do anything? You know, you know why, why press? You know, why have a faith that's, that's more than, than a mile wide and an inch deep? You know, why teach? Why care? That's the modern church. People who ask that should listen to themselves. What's the point of being first rather than last and serving the Lord whom you love? What's the point of being found rather than lost? 
What's the point of knowing the truth rather than living in ignorance? What's the point of being welcomed home by a waiting father rather than languishing in the pigsties? What's the point? The question answers itself. I mean, if you can't get that, you're probably not Christian. Honestly, if you can't get that, you don't have a clue what's going on. If you think you can somehow separate Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom from living a full-blast gospel life. If you can think you can separate that, you have the wrong Jesus. That is anti-Christ. I know it's everywhere. I know it's even in the churches. It is nevertheless anti-Christ. To be remembered by Jesus is to be drawn into his body. To be in his body is to be part of the church, and the church is always a full-blast exercise of the gospel. Are we short? We are. Do we come up, you know, less than what the Lord would want? We do. But confession admits that, and absolution restores us uh, for the next good thing. So, you know, happy Lent. Let's pray. Next week, um, we'll go to another word. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Thanks.